So we will start. So chapter 14, uh, before I give you my aim, and I really like my aim. I like my aim tonight. And I did not tell the group that I've sat in with um, what this aim is. Um, but I'll get to that here in just a set, just a few, a couple of minutes. I want to just re- uh, go back. You remember that we're in this section of Luke called the, the journey narrative, the travel narrative. You remember what pop quiz? What verse does this major section of Luke start in? What chapter? I'll give you a hint. What chapter? Sorry, we're, all right, so, yeah, sorry, well, you haven't been with us, so this is new. You're exempted from the pop quiz, Mark. Um, so, the first big part of Luke was around the Sea of Galilee and that area, and then there, for about several chapters, and then there was this key verse a few weeks back, actually before Christmas, <laughs> it gives you a hint, so it wasn't, la- it wasn't 12 or 13, it was earlier than chapter 12. And it said something about Jesus, very specifically about his purpose or his. And it said, and, G, and he set his face. If you're reading King James, set his face like a flint. I think in the King James, he he said his. Who's got that? It's chapter nine, verse fifty-one. Check me out there. Verse nine, chapter. So in your hallway discussions, you can impress your fellow church members in the 51, 951. Yep. What does it say? And time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus, Jesus, what? <laughs> oh, resolutely. There you go. Resolutely. Or he set his face like a flint, steadfastly, steadfastly. And, and that's a real pivot point in, in Luke's narrative. And and, um, and one of the things we pointed out that from before that time, healings were more prominent in the text, and since that time, they're getting fewer and fewer. And we, we also noted that. Um, Two or three places along the way, between 951 and finally in, in chapter 19, where Jesus finally enters Jerusalem, the week of the Passion Week, the triumphal entry, which is not, it's not 19-1, it's 19-something or other. But there are a couple of three places it, during this, in this journey narrative that remind us that that's what Luke, that that's what's happening. And so we missed, we just went over one last week. Go back to chapter 13, verse uh, 20, uh, 20, 21. Where does it say? He went on his way. You know, there's a problem when the Bible teacher does not have his Bible open. Verse 22, Mark, what does it say? And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So he's headed toward Jerusalem. And some, at least one that I, one fellow that I listen to a lot, he's a, I've told you about him before, he's a British fellow, uh, St. Helens Bishop's Gate over in London. And he organizes his, his whole teaching of the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, according to these, um, this section, I should say. This this travel uh, narrative section, he he chunks it up 
I think, into four divisions based on these uh, these verses that remind us where Luke kind of says a summary and make and, and, and reminds us that Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. The reason I point that out uh, again tonight is I, I increasingly begin to see that what's going on here in chapter 14, particularly the first the big division, is this this uh, increasing. Um, you know, it's the division, it's the opposition among the, on, the, on the part of the Pharisees and, and the lawyers, the religious elite, the religious leadership of Israel. And they were setting themselves against Jesus. They, they dug in their heels and Jesus is calling them to account and forcing the issue and, and essentially, I was going to say pronouncing judgment, but he's not, he's telling them it's, this is what's going to happen. Here's going to be the result. And you remember... Um, Last, just go back up the last couple of verses of last week, verse uh, chapter thirteen, and, and, if, and we and I didn't explain it. I don't. Uh, I talked about it a little bit. You know, somebody came up and said, you know, in fact, it was Pharisee. Verse thirty-one: Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said, You go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. And we said, he wasn't talking literally from that point that three days later he was going to be in Jerusalem, but he was, he was speaking, you know, he was giving an allusion to what was going to be happening. Um, and nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. So again, he's, he knows he is headed to Jerusalem. And we've said at different points, and we'll see it some more, he, he begins to focus in on his disciples, particularly his 12, telling them, guys, this is where we're headed. This is what's going to happen. And, and they struggled, you know, to really understand and to, to accept what he was telling them. But, get, but look at verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and, and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. So he's, he's telling the crowd and telling them. And we see it tonight. So, so 14, you know, it, it, the setting changes. And, and so there's two big divisions. I think I, I originally structured my questions in three divisions. That's, I was you know, taking those last two verses as a paragraph, as something under themselves. I've decided, no, they are the final thought. They're the closing thought of that second division. First division, Jesus in, is in the setting. He's, he's once again been invited to be at, to dinner, to a Sabbath meal with these Pharisees. And, and my sarcastic question to myself is, why do these guys keep doing that? Why do they keep inviting Jesus over for dinner? It does not go well for them. When, when they, and and they, had, they had a reason. Uh, we'll, and I'll talk about that in a second. So he has that, and, and, and then it shifts to, um, in verse 25, to, to great multitudes. So two big divisions. So here's in my, the aim that I have that I think uh, connects the two. So, so I'm arguing that that second division, Luke put it there because, and, and, to make a point or in contrast to the first division. 
He didn't just say, he didn't just kind of randomly or arbitrarily decide, well, I think I'll talk about this other thing, Jesus, this other experience, you know. No, Luke's got a theological purpose for Theophilus and for us to help us understand the, the, the fullness of the gospel, if you will, and who Jesus was and why he did what he did. So my aim is this, to cause the audience to know that God wants neither hard-hearted refusal, hard-hearted refusal, nor half-hearted desire. God wants, and I, I, there's probably a better or stronger, you know, God wants or God requires or God, I, I, but I just left it with God wants neither hard-hearted refusal, that's the, division, that's the first division, nor half-hearted desire. So by that aim, I'm saying the, the, the point, if you will, of when Jesus turned to the, to the multitudes and, and gave them the, the, the exhortations about the cost of discipleship and what it really meant to, to be a follower of him, he said he's doing that in contrast because the point of the first division, hard-hearted refusal, their mindset was, we're privileged. We're the privileged. We're God's chosen people. In fact, we're the leaders. That we're, the, we're in charge. We're the elite of God's chosen people. We're in. And it's all that riffraff that uh, is not. And, and, and Jesus ends up saying, no, guys, you will not be at the banquet. Verse, what verse is that? Verse 24. The end of that story, that second story. He says, I tell you, and he's, in, in the story it's, the master responding to the slave that he had sent out, right? I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So, so if you were, if you kind of heard of that, or if you were sort of in the fringes and you kind of heard, and, and you know, Jesus had this kind of conversation with the Pharisees before, you you might get the sense that, well, I'm glad I'm not one of those guys, right? I'm over here. I'm following Jesus. I'm in the crowd here. I'm following Jesus. I'm not one of those proud Pharisees that Jesus just shut, you know, shut down. So you kind of get a, a sense of, you know, I'm glad I'm not one of those guys. And Jesus is saying, okay, listen, it's good that you're not one of those guys, but let's talk about let's talk about what what is what the goal really is, and it's not half-hearted uh, a half-hearted desire. So let me see if I can just make a few points about that. Um, I said in, in that first division, chapters, so it's verses 1 to 24, I finally came, you know, it's interesting to the guys that were the, the group I sat in on. In my own little notes here, I called it the setup, and I didn't mean it like we said it was. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> I lost you. You're, ah, Bill. <laughs> there he is. There are some in our group <laughs> that really think the, the Pharisees orchestrated this, this Sabbath meal, this, this, this uh, banquet, and invited the man with the dropsy, the man with, you know, the, the man with the problem, specifically. Now, this is somewhat speculation, but I think there's some, it's not totally out on, it's not outlandish. Because, look at the text, verse 1, chapter 14, 1. So 
So he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread. And they were watching him closely. And there's a couple other instances where Luke points out the Pharisees, they were watching Jesus. And they were plotting how they might catch him in order that they could end up killing him. They, they were against him, uh, um, not just in a passive sense. They were actively against him. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And the question, and this, you know, why was he there? And I asked the question, was he invited? I kind of think he was, I, at least I went into the discussion group thinking he probably wasn't invited. But I'm open to the idea he could have been a plant. When you read, and, and the reason, what's interesting too about this text is it's clear from the text to me that the healing is not the point of the text. Right? Did you notice that? Here's the man with dropsy. Jesus sets it up. You know, the issue that they've, that they've debated or they've had conflict before, is it lawful for, to heal on the Sabbath? Of course, he knew what they thought. And so he pulls the man, he heals the man, and then it says, and he sent him away. And it's just like, there's no dialogue, there's no, no reaction. What did the man, when he got healed, what was his reaction? None of that that we saw in the healings in the first major portion of Luke's gospel. Now, this was about proving the, setting up, forcing the issue in front of these Pharisees to demonstrate to them, to themselves, that they were guilty. And they knew it. They knew that they, they had no answer. Look at that verse 6. They could make no reply to this. Because he... And here's a pot, another pop quiz. This is not a pop quiz. This is a who know who really knows our Old Testament because we debated in our group. And we couldn't settle. Does the Old Testament law in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, does it teach that it literally was legal in the Jewish law sense to if your animal or your son were in the ditch on the Sabbath, it was permissible in the Mosaic law to you know do the work on the Sabbath to rescue that animal or that. Anybody, did y'all get into that in any of the groups? There are some references to... <laughs> you stayed with the text. Way to go, Bernie. You get points for that. Yeah. Anyway. But he knew, the, at least, he knew that they, that that's what they did. They all had, that, that was their understanding just in terms of the way they lived the law they thought it's perfectly fine that you know to if their if their ox had fallen their donkey had fallen into the ditch they had no problem on the Sabbath putting forth effort to rescue that donkey. In fact, what was the was it last week that the contrast between the donkey that was tied up and the woman who was bound by Satan and had been bent over for eighteen years and Jesus drew that contrast. You know, you'll untie your donkey on the Sabbath. This is a daughter of Abraham, and you're telling me I can't heal her on the Sabbath? You know, he just was nailing them in their hypocrisy. You know, we discussed in our group, my translation was son, not daughter. That's the way it is. Ah. And several people had some reference to child. Uh huh, uh huh. You know what? I have that. I have it in the NAS. Which of which one of you have a son or an ox? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I see. There's a there's apparently a textual 
Because it could be donkey or an ox or son or an ox. Okay. So, so that's the setup, the Sabbath healing. And I say setup, at least it, it, Luke is setting up to get us to, to land us at this verse 24. So it starts off with this healing. And, and these, these legal, the, the Pharisees, the, 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 the uh, elite of the Jewish leadership system. So Jesus is noticing the guest. Can we have one more comment, one more verse? Okay. In, in Matthew uh, 12, it says, uh, Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take a hold of it and lift it out. But how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on, on the Sabbath. Sabbath. What verse is that? That's Matthew, Matthew. 12, uh, 12 uh, 11 and 12. Matthew 12, 11 and 12. Yes. So he flat says it is yeah. lawful. So then he gets onto these people. He notices that they're, they're jockeying for position best seats the seats more forward to the to the guest to the uh, to the host and Jesus takes that opportunity to point that out to them and says you know he, he concludes that in verse 11 he says you really ought you ought to do it the other way around because and he gives them this principle for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And, you know, we, in the context of, the, of this argument I'm building, we could take that in the eternal sense. The Jews were exalting the leadership. They were exalting themselves. And Jesus is saying, you will be humbled. And those who are humble will be exalted. And it's another version of, you know, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So he... he, he he tells them that, and then verse 15, no, then verse 12, this is interesting to me, then he, he turns his attention back to the one who had invited him. And he gives them that, uh, the exer- exhortation, don't just invite your brothers, your friends, your rich neighbors, you know, those that can, get, can invite you in return. But who did, verse 13, look at that. When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you notice... I didn't notice that till this morning. That exact formula, if you will, that foursome is repeated down in verse 21. The people who get the second round of invites to the banquet. Right? So let me so so these so this first division, Luke is, is portraying once again, he's kind of putting on display the hard hearted refusal on the part of the Pharisees and the, and the lawyers, and how Jesus dealt with that, his position, the, the result again being this this story that says in verse twenty four, I tell you, none of those men shall be invited. Now let me talk about something. Something that I had never really thought of, it, never seen, but I saw it in a couple of places, and it really caught my attention. And that is the meaning, if you will, of this this story. So he, he sends out the initial set of invitations. Think Israel. Think the, think the, uh, um, the elite, you know, the, those who thought they were in because they were descendants of Abraham. Of course, they refuse. They, they give excuses when it comes time. 
Notice the invitations go out first. The initial set of invitations go out way before the event. Then when it comes time for the event, and I'm tempted to think Jesus is saying, the event's here. And, and, and I wouldn't say it. Just, we'll see this. If, if you think back to those of you that studied Acts with us, you know, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. So this this season of time from when Jesus came, starting with John the Baptist, up through, I mean, if you go to the very last verse, verses in Acts, Paul tells, you remember that Paul's in, in, in Rome under house arrest? Chapter, what, Acts ends in chapter 28, and it's that last little paragraph. And the Jew, a, a contingent of Jews have come to see him, and he's reasoned with them, and eventually they... They, they don't buy what he's... They, they reject the gospel again. And he essentially says... Um, in fact, let's look at that real quick. Because I didn't memorize it. But it's the same notion that... Um, he quotes... It's verse 25. This is Acts 28, verse 25. Right at the end of the book of Acts. They began to agree... To, to agree to, they did not agree with one another. They began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. And Paul looks at these Jewish people, these Jewish leaders, said, The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. It's talking about, you know, they'll keep on hearing but not understand. You'll keep on seeing but not perceive. The heart of this people has become dull. The ears they, they scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Let it be known to you, verse 28, let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will also listen. Now, come back to, to Luke. So the invitations go out to Israel. The leadership of Israel rejects Jesus when he comes. So what does the master do when, when he gets that first round of excuses? He tells his, his slave, well, you go out and you invite who? Who do you invite? Verse 21. I said verse 21, right. Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city. So still think Israel, but who among who in Israel? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The outcast of Israel. Invite those people. And they came. But there's more room in the banquet hall, right? And the master says, there's more room. We're going to fill this place up. Go out where? Into the highways and along the hedges and compel, compel them to come in. Think Gentiles. The gospel going to the Gentiles. And, that, and you know, I, told, I think I told you all last week that I've, one of the things I'm doing increasingly as I spend time in Luke is looking for grace. Because there's so much... I'm just, I just say negative, negative, you know, it's, it's Holy Spirit inspired, righteous negativity, but it's, it's warning and judgment and it just, there's, there's a negative tone, but man, there are places where you see grace and it's the, the lame and the poor, uh, it's the humble, it's, it's, it's the, the working out of what he had just told them. You exalt yourself, you're going to be, you're going to be uh, humbled. If you humble yourself, if you're, you're going to be exalted. So. So I think he's, he's dealing with this hard-hearted refusal and what's going to happen there. Then, just in a nutshell, so the, then he goes to the, he, he turns to the great multitudes. Now, that's a different setting. It's not just like, what like this multitude 
sitting right outside the banquet hall, I mean, this Pharisee's home, right? But I think Luke is putting these two together, again, to say to the, to the multitude, just to make sure that they didn't misunderstand what it meant to be a follower of Christ. That being a follower of Christ was serious business. So let me... Um, and I hope if you got if you read my second email, I hope I didn't want you to get hung up on four. Because when I read it again, you know, I did those questions a couple weeks ago. When I came back to it midweek of this week, I thought, what was I looking for? I don't see four. See some structure, but I don't see four. Here's three. <clears throat> three conditions. Um, and then there's a couple of examples that I these, these counting the cost. One is hate. The very first thing he says, and I think a good cross-reference to help us understand that that it's not overtly hate, but it is that relative priority. And in Matthew's version of this, this his essentially his version of this same teaching by Jesus, Matthew chapter ten, verse thirty-seven. In fact, I didn't write it down. Let's look at that really quick because it just helps us know that. You know, Jesus didn't, he didn't really want husbands to hate their wives. And why do we know that? Ephesians 5 is a starting point. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? And there, so you can, if we take the rest of Scripture, we know that Jesus wasn't really saying, wasn't literally saying, I want you to hate these close relationships. But he did want you to put, he's telling, you've got to put me before them. And in, in our group, I thought, and I won't name names because I don't want him to get proud of himself. Get puffed up, right? But uh, he connected us back to um, when when Jesus said, "You got to hate, you know, husband, basically hate your wife." Go back to verse twenty. One of the excuses that one of the initial invitees gave was, "I've married, and I, I can't come to your banquet now because I just got married." And Jesus is saying that that won't cut it. That's not going to do it. Um, so. Put Christ above all others. Matthew 10, 37 helps us see it that way. Die to self. Carry your own cross. We saw that in back in chapter 9, verse 23 in that little section. And I, we said then that in, in their context, when they heard carry your, you know, take up your cross, they knew that meant death. That, that, was, that was part of state execution, the, the method of state execution. So that they had to understand that is in some sense I've got to die to myself. I've got to die because you know back in Luke nine twenty nine, take up your cross daily. So we know it wasn't a it, it wasn't just a one time go kill yourself kind of a thing. It was a daily orientation of saying no to myself. And then he and then verse three, which maybe you or not verse three, but point number three, when he says so therefore verse thirty three. So therefore, kind of summarizing what he's been talking about, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up or relinquish or surrender all of his possessions. So, so, we, so Jesus is saying this, this is not about half-hearted, a, a half-hearted desire to come, just kind of being in the crowd, following me because you're interested or I can help you. And in their case, I can heal you, I can feed you. But that's it, you know. That that's not that is not it. Um, so what does then 
Therefore, and I should have seen this, verse 34 and 35, that tells me that there, those two verses are connected to, to what he's been saying. Therefore, salt is good. But, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? And it's a rhetorical question. There is nothing. If salt loses its saltiness, it's done. It's In fact... I missed this. A couple of different commentators pointed out it's worth. It's worse than worth than than worthless. It's actually detrimental, and that's why he talks about it's useless either for the soil because it'll ruin the soil or the manure pile. I did not study that. I don't know what. I, I know there was a cultural. I'm sure agricultural. Maybe it's a compost. I don't know. Maybe y'all studied it, but it's it's bad. I know it's a bad thing if the salt is so bad that it's not, you don't even want to put it on the manure pile. That, that is bad salt. I know that much. No research needed there. Yeah, there you go. Salt, salt is supposed to uh, speed up the uh, decomposition. Ah, the decomposition and salt that lost its saltiness wouldn't even do that. That's correct. Thank you, Dick. You get two points for tonight for your contributions. I'm, y- y'all know I'm kidding about these points, right? <laughs> so here's my um, my personal reaction to these because I read these and you know initially. And, and let me let me see if I can say. Uh, let's see. One of the things I want I do want to make the point that I think Jesus is. He's not talking about a second level of discipleship. Uh, Here's my observation, or my summary, my takeaway from that last section. Key observation, Jesus was was addressing the crowd. You notice that in in verse 25, I believe it was. There are three places. Luke has shown us that if if Jesus addressed the disciples as opposed to the multitude or the crowd... Luke has demonstrated he he makes that distinction. So chapter just go back to chapter twelve, chapter twelve, verse one, verse twenty two, verse fifty four for just three examples of where Jesus. And, and if you look at twelve, he alternates some of the things he says in chapter twelve. He's saying to the crowd or the multitude and other things, but to his disciples first. So Luke is capable of making that distinction here. Jesus turns to the crowd, so he's talking. It includes disciples, but it's also people who are just in the crowd. And Jesus is talking to all of them. So he's not talking about some second level of discipleship. It's not like he turned to the 12 or the 70 and said, Now, you guys, if you really want to be serious, then you got here's the level of commitment that requires. No, he's talking to everybody. So therefore, I'm saying in general, he's talking about salvation. Now, the difficulty with that, to me at least is I, I, I could be tempted to say, well, in order to be saved, I've got to, re- I've got to on the front end, <laughs> renounce everything. I've got to be at the place w- that Jesus describes, or I cannot be his disciple. I don't think so. The rest of the New Testament tells me that, that salvation is a process. G- God starts different ones at different places. You know, the process of sanctification. Um, and here's some examples just to kind of support what I'm saying a little bit from Scripture. Peter denied Jesus, did he? 
And, and of course, Jesus told Peter, I've prayed for you, Peter. Satan wanted to sift you like wheat. I've prayed for you so that, you know, after the, you will return. Uh, Paul was motivated. He had a fear of being disqualified. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians, the last verse of 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. And then I just, from a salvation standpoint, I think I mentioned in my second email, just that, that scene in, in, the, in Cornelius' house, Peter goes, preaches, as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household. They begin speaking in tongues. And it says in Acts, this is Acts 10, verse 42, it says, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in, in tongues and extolling God. They were saved. And there's no mention of them coming to some special or specific point of self-denial. The same terms that Jesus is using here. Do you see that distinction I'm making? So I'm saying Jesus is telling the crowd, Christians, non-Christians, people who are, who are you know, interested, who are, that are within earshot... Let's, let's talk seriously about what it means to be my follower. Here's what, I'm, here's what the intent is. Now, it's all by grace. Um, how did you say it? You said something toward the end. I really liked what you said. Yeah, I did too, but it's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The cripple, the lame, I think it had to do with... The, the, we, that's what we are. We can't save ourselves. We're the blind, the cripple, the lame... And, and we are the, that's who we are that Jesus invites and compels to come to the banquet. And then he works in us to get us, you know, different processes, different phases, different speeds, if you will. But this is where Jesus is taking us as we are conformed to the image. You know, what does uh, Paul writes in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians? We are being transformed into the image of Christ. Anyway, so... So, my, so let me see if I had anything worth saying. Oh, so two verses is I wrestle with, because I, you know, just on the surface, I look at that, this list, and I go, I don't measure up too well in some of this. It's like, Lord, can, can I be your disciple? Because, man, this is, in, this is uh, indicting. Um, and here's my, here's my two verses. We, back in Mark, we studied Mark way back when. There. In the transfiguration, Jesus comes. The, guy, the, the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. The boy, the son, the father who had the son who was demon possessed, and he threw in the fire. And and and, and when uh, in Mark's account of that, the the, the father kind of he says, Jesus, if you can, heal. And Jesus says, If I can. And he said, Just believe. And the father, you remember what the father said to Jesus, Lord, I do believe. Help me. In my unbelief, it's like that's kind of. I mean, <laughs> could that be your life verse, Lord? I believe, not totally though. Or you know, help me in my unbelief. And then uh, another, a similar one, but a little bit different. That was Mark uh, nine twenty four, nine twenty four. And then lastly, John six. And it's interesting to me, Dick. You were kind of doing. You were referencing John chapter six. Uh, in the very end, it, it, just in a nutshell, it's a long chapter. The crowds are following Jesus. He says some tough things, and some, and they start grumbling, and some of them quit following him. And 
He says, you think that's difficult? And he says something even more difficult. And the crowd thins out some more. And it finally gets to verse 66. And it just, I remember reading this year. It just stunned me. Jesus turns to the twelve. And he says, you guys want to leave too? <laughs> that's like... <laughs> And I have a little pencil note in my margin. I don't know who said it, but I, it's one of those things you could put on a pillow. We try to lure people. Jesus tries to lose people. <laughs> it, it, he turns to his 12 and says, you, want, you guys want to leave? And what you remember, what, what got me was Peter's response. Thank you. <laughs> Peter says, he said, this is John 6, 68 at this point. Simon Peter answered, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that just, there's a lot of things that aren't right in my life, but that's, that's kind of the heart, that's the heartbeat. It's like, gosh, where else would I go? You know, you're, Lord, you're the one who has the words of eternal life. So, next week, chapter 15. Thank you, guys. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are um, we love the Word. We get excited every time we get into it. We're challenged. We're bothered. We're encouraged. We go through it. There's just a range of uh, things you do in us and through us. So we just pray for your Holy Spirit's work. Make your work, your, your Word to us, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. May your Word judge. May this Word, the things we've studied in chapter 14, Judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, we pray you do that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.